Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 83 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday morning, July 25th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I am about to go on the DL for eight to 10 months with foot surgery. Oh wait, no, that's not me. That's Joanna Cespedes and all my hopes and dreams for that second half comeback from the Mets. You're, you're, you're hoping for a comeback from the Mets. You are Listen, an eternal optimist, they my couldn't, friend. I, I am. They couldn't, have, they couldn't have a worse second half than the first half. And then they're like, oh, wait, hold my beer. Yeah, hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> the second half says, hold my beer. That, uh, it, did, he, did he tweak his ankle or his foot or whatever by stepping on Tim Tebow's hand? Is that what happened? You know, I, the Tim Tebow thing, I mean, I am, I, am, I am not a Tim Tebow fan. I was not one of those who was, you know, chomping at the bit for the September call-up of Tim Tebow to the Mets from AA Binghamton. It would have been something to watch, I but guess. I was going to say, it was like the one remaining interesting thing. I guess, I guess maybe, you know, could Jacob deGrom be the first pitcher ever to win the Cy Young with a losing record? Yeah, probably you know? not. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, I think what Felix Hernandez won the Cy Young five, six, seven years ago with a record of like twelve and eleven. Yeah. I mean, anyway, there, there's now like zero reason, not just like little reason, for me to pay any attention to the rest of the Mets season. It is brutal. This is why we can't have nice things this as Mets really, fans. I, none of my sports teams. I mean, like I'm. I, what You're is, kind of a kiss of death lately. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, just, I have I have nothing to to you know. Can feel that be good the show about. title? You're kind of the kiss of death. I'm the, I am the kiss of death. I think we have a lot of contenders for show title. Um, we have a lot of contenders for show titles. We have a lot I mean, of topics for the show. Uh, we have a lot of topics for the show. It's been you know interestingly um, not a case law driven week in National Security Law land, but a certainly news filled. Full yeah. of chunky stuff week. Yeah, so we'll, we're not going to go too deep on anything, but here's here's what we're going to do. Our, our first chunk of topics are all Trumplandia topics. Trumplandia! we got some good ones. Uh, Trumplandia was a rich field this week. Oh, my gosh. Uh, how about we start with the Carter Page FISA application and some of the issues that are percolating around that? Uh, following Pe- that, people, people can't see that I am already rolling my eyes. Yeah, we had a little Twitter activity about the <laughs> eye roll the other day. I, I, the really interesting question is how could listeners reasonably question which of us is more physically expressive? Just by knowing us, I could just listen. I mean, you know, what I, mean? <laughs> I don't think you would have to know what either of us look like, or even like you know, ever have seen us in person to figure out which one of us is you know less has less of a poker face. That. We should play poker. Have, I think we that should I should not play poker because I, I will be. I will lose my money quickly. I think you're trying to set me up. I think I should have like a little, uh, like a ringer or a buzzer when you roll your eyes. I don't have to comment. I can just, for the benefit of the listening audience, kind of. So this is, you know, in addition to the swag that you've now been promising for months, I oh, think yeah? we also need props. Props. Like we need the, we need the, you know, uh, the litigation report. You know, we need the the if, bell when Steve's rolling if, his eyes. Hey, if I wasn't afraid, it would disrupt our download numbers, which I'm desperate to. You know, listeners, we are so close to. 10, Why are you 000. so desperate? Like, I because ten thousand. It's so fun to say. It's so we have arbitrary. 10, it is. And nonetheless, it would be so fun to be able to say we've got 10,000 listeners. Our last episode, 9,895 listeners. Downloads, not listeners. Da- Hey, I assume that every one of those. <laughs> this is like the old days when uh, Major League Baseball used to count the number of tickets sold, not the number of, se- of, of seats occupied. Exactly. Well, yeah. I went to a, I went to a Marlins game when I was teaching at the University of Miami back when the Marlins still played up at whatever that was Joe Robbie slash Pro Player slash Land Shark Stadium, um, <laughs> and and I, I I literally sat there and counted the number of people in yeah, the stadium. All seventeen of you. It was about six hundred and seventy five. Yeah, it was and like they, a late the reported season. attendance was like eleven thousand. Yeah. It's like you know, no, it's ridiculous. You see that all the time in sports, and I guess the question that raises is, what is the um, 
average drop off rate uh, for for downloads versus actual listens? Is it is it fifty percent uh, across all podcasts? Well, I, th- I think the I think the million dollar question, especially for us, is not necessarily how many people actually listen, but how long people listen. Like, like a, a a curve. Like at what well, point sure do it's folks drop like a stone right now? Although today, I will say today there might actually be a reason to stay to the end because we have excellent frivolity. We have good quality. Uh, solid as a rock. Solid as as the rock. Solid as the rock. Frivolity. <laughs> All so, right. So back. solid as the rock. Episode title. Could, okay, I'm writing that down. <laughs> solid as. All right. So we got Trumplandia. We've got the Carter Page Fies application. We've got the um, apparently maybe promised extradition of Mike McFall. No, in fairness, <laughs> in fairness, it, it's it's far from clear they were thanking extradition, but I think it was hinted at enough to make it fair game to... Right, so we're going to talk about Carter Page. Yep. We're talking about the Mike McFall situation. We're going to talk about the uh, security clearance revocation kerfuffle. Absolutely. And that, that actually, there's a lot to say there. Um, and that will hopefully exhaust the Trump-landia topic. But then you, we'll, you don't want to talk about the tape? Uh, Lordy! <laughs> there's a tape. Yes. Yeah, actually, we, we should say a little bit about that, I guess. Eh. Um, it's, it's hard not to. We'll move on, though, to uh, detention and prosecution of terrorism suspects. That actually with, sounds like national security law. That, that will actually be some national security law where we will talk about, first, uh, a slight update on the ongoing detention administered by the SDF forces in theater. In Syria. Um, and the U.S. connection to that. Second, we'll have a significant but still contingent Dovey Mattis update because you got to have a Dovey Mattis update. I mean, what are we going to do when that case is over? Well, so someone asked me in Washington last week, hey, you know, when Dovey Mattis is gone, what what happens next? I said, you know, in my experience, that nature abhors a national security law vacuum and something will emerge and become a new sustaining member. I think I've told the story before about how when I gave a job talk in the fall of 2004, right before the presidential election, someone asked me what I was going to write about when John Kerry wins. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, and and for a while there, I thought this next news was going to be the next sustained member uh, because there was news of a new Islamic State fighter, American citizen. Well, one fighter, one uh, spouse of fighter. And uh, actually, they're all... They're both in civilian court as we speak. One of them's getting arraigned uh, in about an hour or so. So we'll talk about Ibrahim uh, Musebli and Sam or Samantha El-Hassani and uh, how all this stuff fits together as the latest insights into America's counterterrorism policy on the, on the side where you actually have custody of somebody. Now, uh, after that, we'll, we'll move to the related topic of military commissions, because we can't go a week without something interesting happening there. Heck no. Heck and we, no. We have two interesting developments, one at Guantanamo and one in Congress. Um, the, at Guantanamo, we have some fighting over unlawful command influence. And Bobby, some, some interesting movement on the question of why Harvey Rishikoff, the former convening authority, was fired and whether that might bear upon the 9-11 trial. We also have a very technical but interesting provision that emerged in the conference version of the FY 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, um, which is also indirectly relevant to the military commissions because Bobby is going to render the CMCR further incorate. Oh, I can't wait to understand that uh, and look forward to you explaining it to me because I didn't track most of that. Um, uh, <laughs> you didn't track the 3,000-page competing bills out of the I, – I, what, what are you doing with your life? I tracked the heck out of the cyber provisions in those, <laughs> and for several weeks I've been I've been touting that we were going to cover it. One day, uh, we're, I'm going to wait till those things are signed. But I will have a segment later on in this show where we talk about how 
almost everything that I wrote about for Lawfare on in relation to cyber operational authorities did make it out of conference. So we'll have a note on that. And then I think that will bring us to our frivolity, which we've, I think, uh, anticipated enough already. By the way, Steve, you gave me another swag idea. I did? I think we need official swag in the form of bingo cards. Because when you mentioned Harvey, I thought, <laughs> Harvey Rishkoff, Harvey would be a great uh, block in a bingo card for National Security Law Podcast. Listen, at, at some point, all of your swag ideas are going to become, you know, exasperating insofar as they're not being translated into into tangible Oh, they, that can just join the queue of things we do and say that are exasperating to our listeners. Well, fair enough. <laughs> no, that, that, the, the t-shirt idea is in the works. We're, the reason, for, for those who are listening to that saying, yeah, what's the holdup? How hard is this? Um, the reason is I'm, I'm working on trying to tie this in with something that will end up having a little bit of a charitable aspect, a philanthropic aspect. And uh, there are a couple of interesting ideas that I'm toying with, and that makes it all slow down. Ah, all right, um, Steve, Trumplandia. Let's let's uh, let's dive in. Let's jump in the magic school bus and go there. <laughs> the, the depressing AF school bus. <laughs> all right, the, the Carter Page FISA applications um, were released. Steve, is this the first time we've ever actually seen yes. a, a roughly complete, although heavily redacted, yes, yeah, FBI application? First time for, for everything, baby. Forty yeah. years of FISA. And that's really remarkable. Yeah. Um, people may be thinking, well, wait a minute. Don't sometimes, doesn't sometimes the government introduce the fruits of Pfizer surveillance and criminal prosecutions of someone later on? And then don't they have to allow, isn't there a challenge on, you know, after the fact, Fourth Amendment challenges, motions to suppress that? Yes, but the defense never gets to see. Right. So the way the public doesn't get to see. This, I mean, this the was a, this was a big fight in 2014 in the Seventh Circuit in the Dawood case, right? Whether um, under 1806F, I think. That's right. Um, a defense, a security cleared defense lawyer, um, should be allowed to access the the full application right. in order to raise what's called a Frank's okay. challenge. And, and just to be clear, it's unquestionable that you can seek to suppress these statements, and the judge in camera ex parte will review the application. So judges see them in these contexts. But amazingly, the defense counsel, though the statute allows for it, judges never seem to exercise that option and bring the defense counsel in to, to make it a non-ex parte proceeding, an adversarial proceeding. Yep, totally. All right, so we have, um, because of all this pressure, um, the cause, I think, in part by the House Intelligence Committee, by President Trump, um, there was this FOIA lawsuit right, filed by the New York Times, um, even though President Trump tweeted that it was Freedom Watch, it was actually not the Freedom no, they Watch. They said lawsuit. it was Judicial Watch. Judicial and he, Watch. And he gave, the, gave props to his new favorite. Uh, Tom, Tom Fillion, Tom Fillion, whatever uh, Whoever it is. And, of course, that wasn't whose litigation spurred No, this. no, no. So wh- why would you actually acknowledge the, the fake the news? James Madison? Yeah, uh, it was James, and James Madison Project, I think, the New York Times. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe they were. Maybe, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, Todd Ruger's going to kill me. It was the James Madison yeah, and Todd Ruger. Yes. Okay. So so they sprung this loose. And, and Steve, is it fair to say that the reason so much of it was not redacted and yes. got sprung loose was because the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence had outed yes. all the Christopher Steele-related stuff, yes. though critically and quite purposely by the Hipsy majority, alas, uh, they hadn't outed all the other stuff in there, which created this bizarre and I think very problematic and unfortunate result where what got released was huge swaths of the application showing all the stuff that goes to Christopher Steele and keeping redactions for all the rest. And that enables further legs for this, I think, quite misleading theory that the whole thing was strictly 
a Chris Steele based, dossier based application where it's pretty obvious from, I think, any fair read of it that there's a lot of other material that's not Steele based that got redacted. And, and indeed, as, as I think our friend Matt Tate at Pulling All the Things pointed out in a really thorough Twitter thread, um, the reauthorization applications, you can actually see more redacted material in the same places, suggesting that the government was actually producing additional evidence. Uh, let's see. I wonder where they could get additional evidence once surveillance begins. Hmm. I wonder what kind of relevant information sources there might be once you're wiretapping the person you suspect is in communication with the Russians. So I want to say, I want to say three big things about the Carter Page Files application. Um, big thing number one. It is now crystal clear that the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Committee affirmatively and intentionally misled the public about what was in the application. Um, you know, folks can still think the application has problems, and I want to get to that. Because I actually think... Yeah, you know, we'll get to that. Right. The application is not perfect. Um, whether that's a problem, we'll get to. But the way it is portrayed in the Nunes memo um, versus what you can actually read. Hashtag memo. Right. Versus what you can actually read. I mean, Charlie Savage pointed this out in, I think, a, a pun intended, Savage New York Times you know, takedown, which is this is just a totally different document than what was portrayed in the Nunes memo. The Steele dossier, the bias of it is disclosed, although now the line is they didn't say it was Hillary. It's right. very obvious. So I got some questions about this. I was very surprised to discover there's yeah. a narrative out there that the disclosure is not an effective disclosure because it's all got masking terms like candidate this, That's campaign how these that. Work. Well, also you. Let me just say this as clearly as clearly can be said. No reasonable person could read it and not see from the context which campaign was which, which candidate was which. It's very clear perfectly clear that the Clinton campaign, that someone within the Clinton campaign had hired source number one, which is Chris Steele, to do opposition research. And that's where this is coming from. And it says specifically, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of to to work against the interest of Trump as candidate, as the other candidate uh, name. So there's no there's no secret there. It was obvious. Yes. So, um, so, so thing number one, right? This is I think a serious repudiation of the Nunes memo and in a normal sane political environment there would be serious questions being asked about you know the yeah. the speaker of the house would have to be held to account to why Nunes is right. still the chairman it, of the which, house which which already you know for for observers like us I think we already thought that was the case was more than made long but ago. But forget observers but like how, us. But how is this not well, now? No, forget observers like us. I mean, as you pointed out over and over again, one of the real grown-ups in the room, Senator Richard Burr, the chair of the Senate yeah. Intelligence Committee, literally came out yesterday and said, "You know, this application looks legit to me. The House Intelligence Committee misled and mischaracterized yeah. what is in it." Well, and it's just further. That's not us. It, no, it's not, and it's further evidence of the of the deep and very very real, you know. Cavernous split that's emerged within the GOP. Um, and that's a recurring topic for us. So, that was one. I, I have two more points if you don't mind. Yes, please. So, thing number two um, one of the things that I think is also really telling here um, is that, you know, the new narrative, the new critique that it didn't sufficiently disclose who these sources were, right? And it didn't include the relevant verification procedures is completely, um, is holding a FISA application to a standard that we never demand for ordinary search warrants in a criminal case and that we never demand in the FISA context either, um, right? And it's basically playing on the notion, I think it's pl intentionally playing on 
a lack of public understanding about how warrant applications work in general and how right. FISA works in particular no to be like, look how bad this looks. And my response is, this is, this is a remarkably thorough yeah. affidavit for a search warrant. They actually disclosed that the dossier was biased. Let, right? me, I mean, they, let me corroborate or verify your, your claim <laughs> in a couple of respects. One, nobody, nobody outside of those who have classified access to the redacted portions uh, has any idea whether and to what extent there was additional information there. But we do know for sure there's a lot of additional stuff redacted that is not the Chris Steele stuff. Right. And it's hard to believe that it's all a bunch of irrelevant, uh, non-corroborative material. So, so, so this and this is this is point. So, so I guess I have four points. I'm sorry. So this is point three. Forget all the noise for a second and just back up. The question four different FISA judges were asked was whether the government had deduced probable cause to believe that Carter Page was an agent of a foreign power, right, as defined by FISA. Forget all of this this noise and look at Carter Page himself. Look at what is undisputed about his contacts with Russian officials. What he has publicly said. Yeah, that had been probable cause. About his, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. the, the actual ball game here is whether the warrant was, is whether there was sufficient justification for the warrant, wholly apart from whether every single I and T in the application was perfectly yeah. dotted. Was there probable cause? Clearly. There was, of course there was. It's, it's not even a close case. Okay. And then this leads me to thing number four. Um, and this is, I think, Bobby, the one point where you and I might actually differ. So... Good place to end, I think. Yeah. Um, I've been very critical of FISA uh, for about as long as I've taught it and known about it. I think it actually, you know, perhaps bends too far in favor of the government in these cases. Um, you know, I don't know that Title I, the sort of classic warrant authority, is the most problematic part of FISA. I think actually the, the non-warrant authorities are, are the, the bigger deals and the bigger problem areas. But, like, if folks really think it's a problem that the government can obtain a counterintelligence warrant um, in a case like this based on that amount of evidence, fine. Then let's have a conversation about reforming the statute, right? That, that is to say, if you really think that this is abusive, it's because FISA is abusive, not because FISA was abused. So I'm curious, to, I don't know if we disagree. I, I suspect we do disagree, um, but I want to pin down what your objection is. Do you think that the standard should be higher than probable cause? So no, I guess the question is, the, 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 I have argued for a long time that I think it was a mistake for Congress after 9-11 to get rid of what was called the primary purpose requirement, right? That So just to back up, yeah. under original 1978 FISA, um, the principal sort of check on preventing sort of pretextual use of FISA to gather ordinary criminal law enforcement evidence, which was the principal concern of civil libertarians, was the primary purpose rule. And the primary purpose rule required the government to certify, and I think the FISA court had to agree, um, based on the certifications, right, that the primary purpose of the search um, was to further a foreign intelligence surveillance investigation, not a criminal law enforcement investigation. Um, after 9-11, with concerns over the wall, right, that had prevented the intelligence agencies from sharing information with each other, Congress gets rid of the primary purpose requirement. I think you could have, right, I don't think the wall was required by the primary purpose doctrine. And I think you could have torn down the wall and kept the primary mm -hmm. purpose requirement. Here's the thing, though. The primary purpose, but so what, what Congress did in the Patriot Act is Congress replaced the primary purpose standard with a significant purpose requirement. That, that foreign intelligence need only be a significant purpose, opening the door to the possibility that FISA warrants could be used pretextually to get around the more, not, not higher standard, but different standard of Title III. Right. And so are you saying, you're not, I don't think you're suggesting that the Carter Page scenario you know, is, is one my, in which this would have mattered. So this is what I'm trying to say, right? 
if that's I, just to finish that thought, because I please. I don't think you have any suggestion here in the public record as to how the Carter Page investigation went down, that it was primarily a law enforcement investigation, but they were sneaking around the need to show a crime was committed by just showing that instead he was an agent of foreign power. I think this was a counterintelligence investigation all the way. Oh, I completely agree. And so this is what I want to say, right, which is insofar as folks are up in arms about the civil liberties of Americans, right, I do think there's a problem even with Title I of FISA as amended by the Patriot Act, but this is not the case. Right. So we agree on that. Yes. This is not a case where a problem has right. been now, illustrated. I, I think we might disagree about whether Congress shouldn't have relaxed the primary, purpose, or the primary purpose requirement. But my point is, right, even if you think the, the – there are so many different places where I think FISA could use reform. Um, this is the classic. This is the most core yeah. classical purpose of FISA, which is a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil who is engaged in contacts that we don't know the purpose of with a foreign government. We want to find out what's going on. No, We're getting a warning. It's the whole point. And if you took, if you stripped out the politics, and this was someone no one had ever heard of, who might be influenced by the government of just to pick at random Indonesia on some deal that maybe was going to advance an Indonesian foreign policy interest uh, through through in a counterintelligence setting, there is no way this is anything other than just a paradigm case where people would say, yeah, you should have a Title I for that. Yep. No, totally. So, all right. Anyway, all right. I just want to say, I, I this is so, like, you know... I, our friend Andy McCarthy, right, is saying, oh, my gosh, look, this, 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 it's like, no, this, the whole narrative is collapsing, people. Yeah, so on that, let's talk real quick about the verification objection. So, because yeah. I, I think that's part of what Andy McCarthy and, and others who are trying to say, uh, there's a whole effort to say, aha. And by the way, what, one of the things that's so unfortunate about our current in, information environment is it seems sufficient as long as the right recognized authorities on, on either side of the aisle on, or whatever it is we say now about our more complex, uh, multivariate political ideological divides, because I don't think Isle captures it anymore. Um, on our side of these various canyons, when the right sort of thought leader says, aha, here you go, and presents something that even superficially looks plausible, so many people just say, all right, I, I don't quite follow all that, but that sounds right to me, and I trust that person. Right. That's a fundamental problem we're dealing with. Um, so one of the things that's been seized upon is this idea that uh, there are procedures uh, verification procedures. The word verification now joins collusion and others as in unmasking as a term kind of ripped from its context and begins to take on a certain potency where you just need to wave it around like a flag. The verification flag is now being waved. This is the idea. Well, what is it really? What it is really is that going back to, you know, more than a decade ago, DOJ has had a set of procedures known internally as the Woods procedures uh, that are meant to add additional assurance procedurally that the factual claims that go into FBI FISA affidavits seeking to make the case for probable cause, uh, that these factual assertions have been, quote, verified. What does it actually mean? It means that all the officials in the chain of officials signing off in the affidavit have done their due diligence to see if they credit these claims. Now, I think there's plenty of reasonable space to ask, you know, how, how good was the vetting by those officials in any given case, including one like this, where what you've got is uh, twice removed hearsay, where you have an agent reporting the statements of a source, in this case, Christopher Steele, who is himself in turn reporting the information conveyed to him by others. Now this, I think, Steve, would you agree, 
that multiple layers of hearsay is completely par for the course in warrant applications and other non-trial, non, non-adversarial settings so this, like this. So this goes back to, I, I don't mean to sort of be a dead horse, but the whole theory of FISA was to sort of borrow from the ordinary criminal law enforcement warrant procedure where layers of hearsay are routinely relied upon at the warrant stage. Now, the reason for that is because the understanding is that if the warrant is actually subsequently fruitful, and evidence derived from the warrant is subsequently used against the defend, you know, the, the target. He or she will have an opportunity to collaterally attack the warrant um, and to collaterally attack whether the government was actually now not whether it was to attack whether it was insufficient on its face yeah. and to attack whether it was obtained in bad faith. Right. And that and that's an, that's true, but that's not all of it. It's right. also that way because how in the world could it be otherwise? Because otherwise means bringing in the live declarants and having the rule against hearsay, having live testimony in. And not because you're at the trial stage, because you're investigating to see what you're going to do next. And that's that's in the criminal context, how much more so in the foreign intelligence uh, context where you're not – where the whole point is secrecy is critical. Right. You, you may or may not – Need to use this information for some adverse proceeding against the person. We don't. Later we on. don't. We don't hold the government to the standard of adversarial testing at the warrant stage in general, and there are especially compelling. And, and at the minimum, the same standard doesn't apply to foreign intelligence cases, as you suggest. There might yeah. even be stronger reasons to not hold the government to that standard. Yeah. But once again, and this is where I just want to harp on this point: if you disagree. You're not object. Your claim is therefore not that the existing FISA process was abused by the Obama administration <laughs> to spy on the Trump campaign. Right. It means you don't like FISA. It means in you don't general. like FISA in and general. And you don't like warrants. And you don't like warrants. And you know what? Great. Yeah. Let's but that's, have, not, but that's that, not really what most of these people are upset about. Of course not. I mean, Devin Nunes is not exactly proposing modifications to FISA. No. Um, all right. Sorry. And I'll, I'll add this. I think a lot of people are interpreting all this. Uh, they're sort of intuiting, reaching for things that sound familiar. They're interpreting the idea of verification as, oh, there must be corroboration, a, in journalist parlance, a second source, right, saying the same thing. That is not what this says, and that's not how the criminal justice system normally operates. It's certainly not how the counterintelligence investigation system operates. So I think we've beaten that horse uh, fully into the ground. Beating the dead horse into the ground? With a dead stick. With a dead stick. All right, so uh, more Trumplandia. Let's let's pivot to Mike McFall. Mike McFall, former ambassador to Russia. Mike McFall. So this is more Helsinki fallout. This is Helsinki fallout. So it, it comes out that the the when in the context of the US indictment, the the uh, indictment of the GRU officers who were specifically identified as being involved in hacking and doxing and other things to uh, interfere in the 2016 election, uh, Putin's understandable response from his own narrow self-interest is try to try to match that, try to link that issue with something that's that's uh, a favorite issue of his. And he wants to turn to Bill Browder, Magnitsky Act stuff. He wants to tie it in with Mike McFall and all these people that he considers enemies and has tried to trump up, pardon the pun, tried to trump up charges against Bill Browder for tax evasion involving Russia and trying to link Mike McFall to all this. It's all a bunch of authoritarian baloney coming out of Russia. But when he ooh, that's, okay. that's the episode title authoritarian baloney coming out of Russia. That's not strong enough. All right, um, but I'm I'm too demure to. <laughs> so uh, the idea is to say, well, if if you've got this in investigation against my uh, officials or former officials, maybe uh, maybe you'd like to help me. I'll, I'll happily put my people before you so they can answer your questions, and then you put your people before me. Give give me Mike McFall. Now we don't know. And that's one of the big problems here. We don't know the very specific thing that was asked for, but the uh, Trump 
White House spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders when asked, uh, did the White House was the was the president asked about this and how did he respond? Instead of saying he told him to, you know, <laughs> I, I can't bring myself to say the things F that off. should have been said. He told him, hell no. How about that? I can uh. say that. Hell no. Get lost. Instead of saying what the only reasonable response would have been, which is hell no, of course not. Uh, instead, said, "Well, it's interesting, and we're you know we're we're figuring out our, we're talking to people about what the posture should be." This set off you know really dramatic alarm bells. People saying, "Oh my God, is are they going to extradite or involuntarily transfer uh, a former American ambassador to Russia <laughs> over to Russia so they can interrogate him?" Now, do I think that it was ever really likely to happen? No. Do I think that makes it okay? that uh, they didn't say hell no when the question arose? Certainly not. I much preferred the way uh, the State Department spokesman, Heather Nauert, who has persistently and consistently been strong in, in taking a normal uh, line when faced with these provocations. Um, it raises the question, though, legally, could it be done? I think people kind of missed that this is not a hard question, Steve. I think we agree completely that despite not agreeing necessarily on the application of ye old, that old chestnut, the Valentine rule. Oh, gosh. The Valentine rule in the context it of Joe v. Mattis. It would clearly apply to Mike McFall. There is, it is the very, it's the clearest thing there is right. about the Fifth Amendment due process clause and the issue of extradition yes. that an American citizen cannot be involuntarily transferred into the custody of some other country from within the United States. Just on the president's say-so. grabbed and taken on the president's say-so. There has to be an extradition treaty, the process under which has to be fi- uh, followed. And, and by the way, there's no way, even if we had one with Russia, which we do not, yeah. uh, there's no way that it you know it would result in a normal proceeding but, I mean, listen, in his we, transfer. We're being way too um, careful here. I mean, right? This is not a legal conversation. I mean, no one no one is seriously arguing that the president has the legal authority. The question is, in what universe is it appropriate to suggest this at all? I think it's I think both. I think it's really important to highlight that here's yet another area where we have a constitution and a rule of law, and it's to prevent outrages like that. And yes, of course, we need to talk about how this is a much larger political and policy problem. It's outrageous. We yeah. completely agree on that. But I think it's important to be clear. And by the way, it would be crazy clearly illegal. Yes. All right. Uh, it would be crazy clearly illegal and offensive to just about everything right. about, I mean, you know, oh, oh, we, well, our former ambassador to, the, no, to, to Russia did, did something you don't no. like, Putin? And, and there's a reason that this began to get people talking in term, in the language of treason, which I know drives you nuts ah. because of the technical legal meaning, but as you say, it's not just legal. Now, uh, in fairness, uh, some have said, well, hold on. It was never entirely clear that what they were contemplating was removing him. It, it could have been an MLAT-type situation where what they were going to uh, do was— A mutual legal assistance treaty. Right. MLAT's mutual legal assistance treaties are precisely in order for one country to get the help of the other country's government in questioning witnesses or getting documents from or information and data from someone in their country. Okay, so we have all, one. First of all, that's not what the president said, right? That's not what Sarah Howard oh, said. No, they don't even know But But, second, any event— I'm no, I'm, I'm not much more comfortable with allowing Russian interrogators onto U.S. soil. Well, and that's not how it works. So this is, this is why I, I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about it so that people understand, like, what is it that can actually be done? Because what if this was not a political thing and not an ideological thing, and it was just some crime, and the Russians are trying to get testimony from some American who happened to have been a former government official, and, and who wasn't, and who wasn't there just because he was saying things Trump didn't like? Oh, exactly, exactly. Okay. So, so people should know again. What are the rules? And after all, like you and I can go all day about the politics and policy, but what do we really know? But we do know about the law. Um, So we have an MLAT with the Russians. The idea is that we can ask them, they can ask us for help questioning witnesses, but you don't therefore get to send in your guys to interrogate somebody. You send your questions. 
And those questions get conveyed, I assume it's sort of a letters rogatory type process. I don't exactly know the, the particulars of how it gets conveyed, but the questions are conveyed, the answers are recorded, there's a deposition basically, and it goes back. That said, there's an opt-out clause. In this case, Article 4.1 of the treaty. And, Ooh, and big hat tip here. You brought receipts. Uh, <laughs> hat tip to Ashley Deeks, the awesome Ashley Deeks, who, who's the one that clued me into all this. Um, you have an opt-out where security or other essential interest security or other essential interests are at stake. And Steve, in a normal setting, of course, that is exactly what would be applicable to explain why Putin purporting to be, Putin forces purporting to be investigating a tax fraud cannot, we're not going to let them depose Mike McFall. Well, um, but of course, who's, who's we in that sentence? Right. So if, if you have the Trump administration, would if, if they actually do at some point present uh, MLAT questions through the proper process, do we think the Trump administration will fail through omission to activate the security or other essential interest clause and pass through the questions and, and bring Justice Department resources to bear in making uh, McFaul give a deposition? Uh, would McFaul be able to litigate to try to say that uh, – you know, um, a writ of mandamus, perhaps, to enjoin the administration to focus clause. I don't think that probably would work. Probably not. I mean, listen. I, I think what we're gonna. This is gonna also come through in our next in our next topic. I mean, I think we're, here's a situation where there very well may be legal authority for the administration, but the stuff they're talking about is so toxic and onerous. Oh, I know. But and do here's you think it would be an, to the, two, two separate questions. Yeah. So toxic and onerous that even they wouldn't do it? Yes. And then separate, you think so? Yes. I hope so. Uh, secondly, if if they grasp the nettle and do it, or in this case, don't do it, uh, the omission of the of the exception, there will be could you litigate it effectively? I don't know, because this is such a, I mean, you know, there's not a ton of, lit- I mean, listen, we'd be in pretty uncharted territory yeah. on this question. I, I certainly there certainly will be litigation. A normal president, I think, would clearly win in deciding not to uh, invoke the clause, and that would clearly be a normal president's Article Two prerogative. Right, because it's, it's very hard. To, right, I mean, it's very very hard to sue the president to get him to take action he doesn't want to take. Right, that's the, I think the question would be whether by not invoking the clause, the president was somehow depriving McFall of his due process, and that's a stretch. And I think it becomes a factual judgment. Like yep. the president can't be second guessed in making yep. that Totes. determination. But if it were but to get yuck. litigated, all rules are off in the Trump years just, just, because no one no one could cause more harm to the principle of deference to the executive branch than Donald Trump has already and probably will continue to. Okay. Speaking of that, Trumplandia goes security on. Security clearance revocations. Yeah. So this one, I think, it, it's hard to muster fresh outrage, and we've, it, you know, we've said all the cliches. We've run out of words and so forth. Uh, threatening, and indeed probably acting to try to revoke the clearances of former administration officials. To, by the way, two patently of, because they've been critical. Of wait, you. wait. Two of whom don't actually have security clearances. That's even better. No, so, it's so it's entirely like, besides the point. I'm revoking your clearance. You can't revoke my clearance. I don't have one. Well, I'm revoking it anyway. Well, he wants to fire him, right? And then, so this this is an echo to firing. I I fired some of these people. I couldn't fire others because they'd already left office. I wish I could fire them. What else can I do? All right, I'll revoke their clearances. And and it's so it's so childish. It's so out of the authoritarian playbook. It's gross. There is no example in American history of anything that resembles this, I but, would say. So, so I actually think the last two topics actually have a common thread, which is the president taking advantage of lawful authorities to punish dissent. Yes. 
and yes. and it's not just dissent. I mean, so that would be bad enough if it were just dissent. But to punish a specific form of dissent, that is to say, people who are speaking publicly um, in contravention of his preferred narrative about his relationship with Russia. Yeah, that's right. And and so it's not. This is not partisan, right? I mean, the the you know, Michael Hayden is not a card carrying member of the ACLU, right? I mean, no, no, this, that's right? part of what's ridiculous here. Right? Right? This isn't partisan at all. This is you know, I am going to use my powers to punish anyone who doesn't agree with is me. Is it time to remind people that Robert Mueller is a Republican? They're all Republicans. Okay, anyway. Um, so, or, or at least we were. <laughs> Touche. Um, so let me just say, um, now here's what the, Brad Moss has a fantastic long explainer on Lawfare, I think yesterday. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it's really good. Um, the basic gist of the explainer is that the president probably has at least some authority to do this. There may be an appeal right. Um, right there, might, like you could theoretically have litigation over whether he had justification, a justification for doing it. Here's my real problem: it's not just that it's a bad look to punish these people who have been actively speaking out about, you know, the Russian narrative. I mean, frankly, I'm one of those who actually does think that DNI Clapper perjured himself before Congress, right? And that you could construct a narrative where some kind of punitive sanction was appropriate, although, of course, that's not what this is. You're, you're, you're referring to stuff going back to Section 215 metadata. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. not talking in any way relating Nothing to Russia. about Russia. No, no. Yeah. But that, that, that if you really wanted to find some justification, that, that the president could probably find a hat. Well, that, but, that would be like firing Jim Comey for uh, harming Hillary's election. Right, for the Hatch Act violations. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, here's my problem, Bobby. And... and um, Patrick Eddington made this point first, and so I want to make sure he gets credit for it. This isn't about these officials, right? I mean, their future livelihood, their ability to be useful to the government, which, by the way, the reason why they have security clearances in the first place is because certain high-level officials keep their clearances so that they can be consulted, um, right, about programs that they were involved in for at least some period of time after they leave. That's not the people I'm worried about. I am worried about the line officers. Sure. No, it's a chilling effect. Right, who are not political appointees, who don't have the comfort of knowing that this publicity will actually be good for them, and who are therefore looking at this and seeing, oh, if I dissent, if I blow the whistle, right, I write an op-ed. If I write an op-ed, if I say anything that reflects badly upon not the policy of the United States, but this right. president, right. my career will be jeopardized. Right, and, and I might not be able to prove it because it's very hard when you're a low-level person to ever know precisely what went wrong. Yeah, you can go to Brad Moss and, and his firm and, and try to litigate this. Uh, some people do, but it's really hard. And so that's what, so what scares me is yeah. not this meme as applied to high-level senior officials. What terrifies me is the... This story and the McFall story is if you are a low-level official who does not have a big support network, who is not a name known to the media, right, these are basically saying if you cross me, you will be punished. Yeah. And that is not how the civil service is supposed to well, work. Let me, let me scare you even more by oh, pointing out that, of course, all that chilling effect is pretty much locked in already just by the fact that these ideas have been aired. Of right. course, it would be a more powerful chilling effect if he pulled off any of it. So let's move to the law on this. There is reason to believe he is actually going to try to do it as to the ones who still do have clearances. So let's let's kind of convey the gist of what Brad wrote. Yeah. Um, and, and it boils down to this. 
Um, first of all, it's, it's well settled that the entire apparatus of, of clearances and secrecy is an Article II function. Um, there's an executive order uh, that has... 12-968. That's the one. It lays out kind of the process of how security clearance applications are adjudicated, yeah. how, you, how you can, you know, if there's a problem, how you can take it up administratively and challenge it. The Supreme Court long ago... Uh, Department of the Navy versus Egan. Yeah, controversial case, but pretty clearly said, look, at the end of the day, this judgment, that's this goes back to what we said earlier, that's kind of a core presidential judgment about uh, the substantive degree of threat you pose. And, right. So, um, so I gotta say, can I just interject one thing about Egan? Yeah. So um, it's cert- we talk sometimes about the difference between inherent and exclusive, right? Executive branch power or yep. inherent and defeasible. Mm-hmm. There's no question that Egan stands for the proposition that the president has broad inherent authority. Yeah, no one denies that. Right. The harder question that is not yet teed up is whether that authority is indefeasible, right? Whether if Congress were actually to come in and pass statutes that were to some degree at odds with the president's pr- prescribed right. what procedures, would then? what would happen? So I just want to, yeah. those statutes don't exist. Right, that's the thing. So, so A, Congress hasn't done that. So then the question becomes, okay, if Congress hasn't cabined the president's discretion to decide who gets clearances and who doesn't, uh, is it really a world in which the president can say, like, I just don't like the look of that guy, or I don't like his name, or the president's delegee? Uh, could you go to court to overturn the substantive judgment? I think the conventional wisdom is like, no, basically, that doesn't work. What you can complain about is process and illegitimate motives Correct. separate from the actual judgment. So the, the one thing I was going to say, though, was my understanding of the existing executive order, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to invoke this national security exception, right, that tends to sort yeah. of speed things up, you need the head of the relevant yes. agency to sign off. All right, so let's lay out just real quick because I think people will be interested in this. Like, how does this work in a right. normal setting? So I have a, I'm, a, I'm a former government official, right? I have my, yeah. I have my security clearance. And someone, let, let's first be clear on the terms. So there's holding a clearance, you hold a clearance, and there's having access to information that is only available to people who do have that clearance. And the clearances come in different tiers, as everybody knows, secret, top secret, and then, and, you know, all that stuff. Um, having a clearance means you've been reviewed and vetted according to certain executive branch determined procedures as sufficiently trustworthy up to a certain point and for a term of years you've got a green light in theory but that doesn't mean you get access to anything you only get access to the stuff that you're you're given access to on a need-to-know basis right. so you can have a clearance and not actually have current access to a darn thing right now um your, t- your clearances do time out after a while if they're not affirmatively renewed. But what's going on here is an effort for the subset of these six people who currently have active clearances to strip them of it, to turn it off now rather than waiting for it to expire. Um, there's a process that involves uh, an internal, whichever entity granted the clearance, so FBI for Andy McCabe and Jim Comey, uh, you know, I don't know if it's DNI or if it's CIA or NSA for, for Mike Hayden, yeah. all, all the above. Yeah. I'm not, it doesn't really matter. Uh, who, whichever entity is is holding the clearance, they have an internal process for documenting that it should be withdrawn for specifically stated reasons. And, of course, those are supposed to be security-related reasons. Um, that's something that you can appeal internally. Uh, as Brad writes, it's not very likely that that the White House can get the FBI to write that memo and to get uh, the director, Chris Ray, to sign off on all this. And so the, the standard process almost certainly wouldn't work. The director has the authority to short circuit the standard process through a national security exception. Chris Ray is not going to do that. Neither neither is uh, you know uh, Coates. Dan Coates. Another reason to keep him in there. Haspel. Uh, uh, no, Gina Haspel's not absolutely not going to do that. Hmm. You think Gina Haspel's going to? I don't know. It's, it's it's an interesting test case. I mean, so if I'm the, if I'm the if I I, I would be 
I, I'll buy you dinner if Gina has. I'll buy you an expensive dinner if Gina Ooh. Haspel, uh, you know, not just tacos. You know, betrays her own values and the organization by yanking John Brennan's clearance. Okay, and 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 puts in paper that he is a threat to national security. There's not a chance. Okay, okay. So, um, so what does that leave? And that's something Brad highlights at the end. Well, at the end of the day, it is this whole apparatus is the president's an extension of his Article II authority. So Trump might issue an executive order or some some version thereof, a presidential memorandum, directing that it be so. And to the extent that the executive order's procedures are to the contrary, they are they are hereby obviated in this case. And then they litigate and we pit the procedural due process claims of you know that group of six or whichever ones litigate yeah. uh, against the president's Article II claim, uh, inflected by the question of can courts even adjudicate that? Right. What now, do you think happens then? So listen, I don't I don't think former employees are going to have an especially strong due process claim, right? When it comes to security clearances, because I think it's still valuable, right? It's 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 a current. Uh, Property type interest under yeah. kind of standard procedural due process analysis. Maybe I mean maybe because I, they, they, there are there are values and reasons for it that are unrelated to current employment because there's so many. I, no, try, listen, who you, have don't, it. you don't have to convince me about that, right? My point is just that, like, unlike other areas where I think this administration is doing things that are legally quite vulnerable, it's not clear to me that this easily cashes out in favor of the the revokees, right? So I guess another way to look at it is, well, if they were fired for their poli- for their uh, political opinions, that's different. There's a lot of, for the stature of employee they were, as yeah. opposed to line employees, right. Pickering type analysis. Right. Um, here, the way I think that the, the procedural due process, and this is entirely off the cuff, I didn't prep for this, you do need a, you need a protected interest. Right. So they need some kind of sufficient property interest. They, the have, property they, interest. they have a property interest in their continuing ability to participate in you know, these discussions. Yeah. Under, the ter- under the usual terms. Yep. You have to inflect that with the First Amendment yep. angle, which is they're being punished for their so speech. So I, I think courts would find a property interest. Um, I mean, I think I think yeah. that's a no-brainer, that there is a property interest in your security clearance. I think the problem is, is that I don't know that they're going to find that property interest outweighed by, you know, the president. I mean— yeah. it, But what about when you inject the, the politicization into That's it? the question. So, so the, again, I don't, think, I don't think the president's doing himself any favors by, say, you know, by making it completely clear that yes. the reason he's doing this, so this is, is tra- solely— So this is travel ban, right? right? Well, and how'd that go? Right. Well, but travel ban is analogous in some ways at version 1.0 that are different with version that's, so later that's, on. Right. So, so the question is, right, if this ever gets litigated, does it get litigated the same way the travel ban 1.0 got litigated, where the courts were like, you've got to be fracking kidding me? Or, is it, or, or does the government do right. the legwork? And, I, and I'm saying this this isn't just analogous to travel ban 1.0, which was very vulnerable right. for all these reasons. But it's actually a much stronger case because there's just <laughs> – there's just no, there's no claim to the contrary, right? There's no rehabilitating this, right? So I actually, I will go on a limb here and say that uh, these guys will win, huh? If uh, for once it, you, Bobby, wait, so I'm so out Listeners, you. listeners, yes. write this down. On July 25th at 11:38 Central Daylight Time, Bobby was more optimistic about civil plaintiffs in a national security case against yes. the government than I was. And 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 it will be, uh, you know, Exhibit 74 in the Trump effect on Seriously. traditional deference to the executive right. branch. Now, um, I think we've said more than enough. Let me just say the the last point I just want to say here is, you know, who we haven't talked about a lot in this Trumplandia conversation, hmm. Congress. A little bit, but uh, what in particular? Uh, it's almost like there's always, yeah. there's always room to talk about it. So historically, one of the reasons why it would be a big scandal, right, if the executive branch did something so transparently political, punitive, to, what took punitive action right. for such transparently right. political reasons, 
the yeah. lever against that would be nasty oversight hearings on the Hill. I mean, when, you know, the, the Bush administration got in really big trouble, right, when there was this whole uh, scandal over the politicization of, of career hiring in the Justice Department. Right. Part of the scandal was what you know came out through all these hearings held by Congress to to look into why this was happening, who started, etc. So it's almost like this would be. I feel better about this if Congress were. Oh, I don't know, acting like a responsible institution in our governmental system. It is certainly you know yet another pr- proof in the well-proven case of separation of parties, not politics, uh, being what the separation well- of parties, not powers. Yeah, what did I say? Politics? Yes. Ha! Um, (laughs) Politics are not separated. Separation of parties, not separation of powers, is what we've actually got. Yep. Yeah. All right. uh, Pivoting to our second clump of topics, let's talk about uh, terrorism suspects in detention (sighs) and prosecution. Yes, let's. Uh, I think we wanted to begin by reminding listeners, because it's been in the news again recently, thanks to some pretty remarkable reporting. If I'm not mistaken, Charlie Savage uh, actually went over to uh, uh, SDF-controlled territory and got in to some SDF uh, detention facilities. Way to go, Charlie. Um, and so we're, we're reminded of something that we harp on on this show and that I, I in particular like to harp on on Twitter. Um, it's not that there are no Islamic State detainees. There's lots of them, including ones who are the foreign fighters who've come into the Iraq-Syria theater from uh, Europe and elsewhere. There are lots of them, about a 1,000 or so held by the SDF with a lot of financial support and logistical support from the United States military. But hey, we're not directly holding them. That's the whole game. Um, about half of that thousand or so uh, that the SDF are holding in their territory in the north of Syria uh, are non-Syrians, and at least 100 or so of them are Europeans, uh, the biggest chunk being uh, Russian. Uh, and, of course, there's, there are lots of parts of Russia, uh, Chechnya being the most famous example, where, you, where you've had this sort of uh, foreign fighter phenomenon before. But there's also you know, more than a dozen from some of the larger European countries more in the West. The fate of these people is a really big deal. Uh, the status quo is not permanently sustainable. I don't. I think it's foolish to assume that the SDF will still be running these facilities or even necessarily holding this territory uh, many years from now. And that was true uh, even before it became fairly clear in, in recent weeks, something that I've been predicting since Trump was campaigning, which is that he was not going to keep fighting in Syria. He would accommodate and sell out to the Russians on that front and, and would absolutely accommodate the Russian strategic interest in the preservation of Assad's complete control over Syria. Uh, And so what that means is these people are going to have to be sent somewhere or turned over to the Syrians, I suppose, at some point. Uh, And the Europeans, uh, that's going to be a big issue. We've had ongoing uh, glimpses into or hints that there's intense diplomatic negotiation trying to get European countries to take back some of theirs. Uh, Some of that has been held up by Europeans saying, well, you're not taking back some of yours, looking at Doe v. Mattis, so why should they take back some of theirs? Um, who knows what will become of that? The the only people we really see by name and get talked about uh, repeatedly are two uh, formerly British citizens who are part of the group known as the Beatles. And I, I, it drives me nuts that that's the case. But <laughs> Alexander Kote and Shafi El Sheikh, they had been British citizens. They are uh, associated with the 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 awful murder of James Foley and many others. Uh, they are Islamic State fighters by their own account. Uh, they though they try to distance distance themselves from some of the the more specific crimes that they're known to have been associated with. Um, 
And they've had their citizenship stripped. The Brits don't want them back. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how the United States might take them. That introduces the question of, well, if we took them, would that be to hold them as Islamic State military detainees at Gitmo and thus have habeas litigation about that? Would it be for a military commission trial at Gitmo and thus all the MILCOM problems? Or would we bring them to the United States for a civilian federal court prosecution um, and perhaps seek the death penalty for James Foley and others in that context, though, though I think uh, Foley's mother has come out on record saying she does not want uh, the death penalty. Um, it's set off a row in the U.K., and this is in the news. A back. row. A row? A you row. say row? It's, it's not row? It's row. I say, hey, I'm in America. I say row. I'm Texas. I'm saying row. But if you're talking about what happened in the U.K., we should, you know, when in, when in London— Okay, fair enough. Well, it's, so there's it's, a row. It's underway. a row like a derby. Yeah, I was about to say it's an just aluminium. Like a derby. All right. So, what is the nature of this? Uh, since they stripped him of, of his citizenship, what what is their stake in this? Their stake is that we need information that they've got, and the United States either has been receiving or is going to receive intelligence from the UK. And this is sort of the tar baby effect from the perspective of some in the UK. Ah, that is that is related to giving custody of him. We are assisting in what could become a death penalty proceeding. We can't do that under the ECHR. Therefore, uh, you know, that intelligence sharing should not take place without assurances that America will not seek the death penalty. And the May government appears to be divided on this question, though the PM herself apparently has come down the side of, no, we can share this information, notwithstanding that the Americans might seek the death penalty. And apparently there's there's a real kerfuffle underway, a row, if you will, uh, about all this. And I'm, Steve, I'm not sure if there's anything else to say about it other than observing that that's part of what's slowing and gumming up the works. Meanwhile, what about the idea that America's got its own detainees over there that we're not bringing into the United States? One of them we talk about all the time on this show. That's Dovey Mattis. Steve, we've got an update. Uh, what's happening? Um, apparently negotiations are happening, and therefore nothing's happening. Yeah, so we were, we were expecting by last week to find out, you know, what was the next step in, in the possibility of releasing him into Syria near his point of, of initial capture, which the ACLU was resisting. And then uh, late in the week, there was a joint statement filed uh, with the court saying, hey, we are in the midst of negotiating this thing. Give us till July 30th to come up with our final plan. Steve, it looks to me like this case is, is going to end with some form of release of, of John Doe either into Syria, but this time probably with a travel document of some kind, I would imagine, uh, which, as I argued last week, they, they really are entitled. He is entitled to as a citizen. Um, or perhaps they've got a deal in place after all to send him back to Saudi Arabia, but with something that's more appealing to him on the back end once he arrives, like maybe he won't be subject to anything other than, you know, some kind of monitoring. I don't know if we'll ever get the details on this, but I suspect that on the 30th we'll be told that they've got a deal in place. And that'll uh, yeah. end the litigation. Without anything. Yeah, so it'll be they'll, – they'll avoid hitting the one-year anniversary and we'll never have found out any new substantive law on how uh, – the Islamic State may or may not be within the scope of the AMF. What the rights of a citizen are, and in the future, and, and, the, and future, and future executive branch officials can say, "Hey, look, we were able to hold a U.S. citizen for ten months without ever having to actually have a court rule on whether he was lawfully subject to military detention in the first place." Well, and uh, I got to say that that is something that is one of the curiosities of the case the entire time has been the the fact that the ACLU has not been pressing for the merits ruling all along, and I think that reflects the fact that at the end of the day, that. As much as they are obviously an advocacy organization, here they're acting as lawyers for a client whose interests may or may not go with where a sort of disinterested policy advocacy perspective might go. 
It's one thing to say, like, no, no, we should be driving towards the merits ruling. Well, I, th- I think we can see, we can read between the lines that they've made a determination along the way, I think smartly, because I think they were going to lose on the merits, yeah. uh, that driving real quickly fast towards that merits ruling maybe wasn't in their client's best interest. Um, maybe, listen, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to second-guess litigation tactics. I mean, I think the— I am. Fair enough. You and I have the benefit of, 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 at least in this context, not being involved in litigation and so being able to sort of step back and say, what's better for the legal system? And color me as someone who thinks that both from the perspective of settling the AUMF ISIS question and from the perspective of avoiding a precedent that you can hold the U.S. citizen for that long without any judicial determination as to the merits, this is, you know, I would have preferred the, the opposite outcome. I'm happy to be colored with the same brush, but I think hey, that hey. the interest of the client didn't run that way. Um, all right. So here's the thing, though. We found out last week or a few days ago, really, uh, there was another Islamic State fighter who's an American citizen. And uh, although a couple of folks like, emailed me like, is this Doe? I'm like, no, 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 no. Not Doe. Ibrahim. Ibrahim Musabli is a 28-year-old American from Michigan, and he was captured by the SDF, not unlike the way that John Doe was captured uh, in northern Syria, fleeing from a pocket of collapsing Islamic State territory. So, in fact, it's just like John Doe in that respect. Uh, He's been in SDF custody ever since. Unlike John Doe, he wasn't then tipped over to American custody, uh, which I think, you know, tells you a lot also about the fact that there's a lot of cooperation between Americans. And Americans have access, as Charlie reported, to those SDF detention facilities. John Doe could have gone down the same way. Just it happened not to. Um, He was taken into custody. And within one of those facilities, another Islamic State detainee identified uh, Ibrahim Musabli as an Islamic State fighter. Um, Here's the thing. It, it, it is different from John Doe in that DOJ does seem comfortable in this case and clearly was comfortable pursuing an indictment. Indeed, had already gotten a sealed indictment, a material support 2339B charge against him. And uh, the story broke as he was being prepared to be transferred back to the United States. Uh, he's back now. He's in Detroit. And as we speak, it's almost 12 noon central time. So in about an hour, uh, he'll be arraigned in Detroit on a material support count. And then meanwhile, we also learned, and this actually, I was embarrassed to realize, this was actually already out there. PBS Frontline, I think, had been reporting on this. Um, Samantha El Hassani, who used to be Samantha Sally, uh, she's an American from Indiana who married a Moroccan citizen who then took the whole family, including four minors, uh, to Syria, where he was an Islamic State uh, fighter. He was a sniper, I gather. Uh, he was killed in an airstrike a while back. When Raqqa fell, Samantha and the children uh, ended up in an SDF camp and then ended up in their custody. The Islamic State, this is fascinating to me, they once released a video that showed the 10-year-old uh, son pledging to carry out attacks against the West. And so we've seen this sort of thing. Uh, this reminds me of, uh, oh gosh, who was who was the Canadian citizen uh, uh, who was held in... It was Maharar. No, 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 no. The guy who, the guy who was uh, a teenager... Omar Cutter. Cotter, right. So this is one of these horrific situations where these, these children are being brought up in this extremist environment and, and saying and doing some things that kids should not be involved in. More on kids later when we talk about Mr. Rogers. Uh, so she's in custody, too. She's back here now. She's been charged, too. It's not getting the same level of attention. She's in Indiana today, and she's been charged so far with one count of lying to the FBI. And her kids are, get this, in Indiana Department of Child Services custody. Can you imagine being the caseworker on on this situation. Um, A very tense uh, and challenging situation at the intersection of family law and best interest of children in situations um, involving the Islamic State. So uh, I guess let's sum up uh, by asking, 
does the Musabli outcome just reflect possible evidentiary variance with whatever's going on with John Doe? And it's kind of as simple as that, that, that they, they really don't want to hold these people as military detainees when they're citizens. But is this some evidence that, look, there really must be some obstacle to prosecuting John Doe, otherwise they do it? Or is it instead the difference that Musabli's an American, he's not also a Saudi citizen, there's no reason to think you're ever going to be able to pawn him off on some other country, whereas John Doe's a dual citizen, and they hope that guy never comes back to America at all. Who knows? I mean, I think, I, 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 I continue to think that there is something in the John Doe case that's not public, that's explained, that, that's responsible for part of the Michigas here. Yeah. Maybe it's just his dual citizenship, I don't know. Yeah. But I will say, the one thing that I found odd was in the Washington Post story by um, our friends Ellen Nakashima and Missy Ryan, there was an illusion, and I couldn't tell from the story if it was the reporters talking or if they were summarizing conversations with administrative officials, to the, to the specter of, of, you know, why not just bring Musabli to Guantanamo and try him in a military commission? And this gives me a chance to, to be hyper-pedantic for a second about do military it. commissions. Do it. This needs to be made clear. So let me say three things that are all true. Um, the Guantanamo military commissions lack jurisdiction to try U.S. citizens for any of the prescribed offenses. True. They only apply to alien, unprivileged enemy belligerents per true. 10 U.S.C. 948C. True. It is not true that U.S. military commissions can't try U.S. citizens for anything. True. Um, instead, you could only try a U.S. citizen under the ex parte Kieran World War II model, um, which means it would have to be an international war crime and you'd have to stand up a whole new set of court tribunals different from the Guantanamo ones, which are all constituted under the MCA, which would be a huge mess. I think it's safe to say that almost nobody understands that there is that sort of separate from the what I'll call the statutory familiar commission system, which is in place down at Gitmo, the, this, this other potential uh, non-statutory mechanism, partially non-statutory, that's just not on anyone's radar. The key thing here, I think, is it's not at all clear from the story that any officials seriously considered this. It could be the speculation of the journalist. I don't know. Maybe they did consider it and they recognize exactly what you said, which is that it's super clear you can't use the Gitmo military commissions to prosecute a citizen and people shouldn't talk as if that's somehow an option. It's super clear you can't. And also it would be, and, and even if you could, right, or, or if you just wanted to hold them in military detention at Guantanamo, that would be a whole separate nightmare because we've never, except for the moment when we didn't know Hamdi was a citizen, yeah, yeah. we've never actually held a citizen in Guantanamo because the government wouldn't want to open the door to all of the litigation challenges that would arise from that. Well, that's for sure. Here's another quote from the original New York Times story that I thought stood out. Quote, the John Doe case has made military officials leery about taking custody of other detainees. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no, no kidding. kidding. <laughs> they should, you shouldn't need the John Doe case. All right, so listen, I mean, I do, I do want to talk a bit about the military commissions. Maybe we'll save that for next week, because I think right. um, there's, an interesting, there's interesting ongoing litigation there this week over unlawful command influence with regard to the firing of convening authority Harvey Rishikoff. That's still in progress, so it might be better to sort of assess that yeah. retrospectively. And that ties in with the NDAA. Now, yep. the National Defense Authorization Act is always a, you know, a Christmas stocking full of interesting stuff from our perspective. And usually at Christmas. Yeah, and this is actually coming down quite early. early. Nice. And I've said this many times. Sask and Hask tend to be the most well-functioning parts These of days. Congress from our perspective. Yeah. Uh, so we're seeing that across the board there. It's probably going to get signed into law pretty soon because the conference committee has just completed its work and released the conference bill and accompanying report. Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff. Once it's signed into law, we'll do a rundown. But there's a ton of stuff on cyber that I had blogged about previously at Lawfare. Uh, really interesting and complex in the weeds, national security law stuff. Two, uh, two Guantanamo relevant provisions. Um, one in which the Senate, uh, a provision that would have allowed medical transfers to the U.S. disappeared in conference. 
um, and one in which a provision that fixes a hyper-technical thing in the military commission, court of military commission review, that renders it probably without, with one fewer judge, made it through. Do you want to talk about talk about that in a future episode? Yeah, we'll do, do it, we'll do it we'll Okay, do it so we'll have an NDAA episode Because later. everyone's waiting patiently for us to talk about Dwayne Johnson. Steve, let's get frivolous. The Rock. It's time for the frivolity. And by the way, when I, I was a guest on Stuart Baker's Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, which is an awesome podcast. It by the way, so I, I like the shot Stuart took at me. Oh, it was awesome. We <laughs> should talk about that more after we talk about The Rock. But I just want to emphasize, uh, Stuart was sufficiently inspired by our frivolity segments that he indulged a little bit at the end of his own episode, uh, which I'm sure confused the hell out but, of but his like, regular but, listeners. But Stuart's whole line about, you know, you've, you've gotten used to blocking left hooks. I'm like, do I, do I punch? From time to time, I hope you do. That's that's a. I feel it, like I feel like I I I I. I but I for jab. us, it's not I, I jab. You, yeah, it's true. Like I think the real question is, are you best described as hooking? I think uppercuts and hooks. No, I think you jab. I think I think that's because we're sparring. Sparring partners. because it's a, it's friendly sparring to sharpen ah. both our skills. This is not a street fight. Ooh, the, we could just take the 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 first rule of National Security Fight Club is there is no National Security Fight Club. <laughs> All right, so we prom- speaking of people who can fight, we promised a discussion about The Rock. And By this- the way, this is shameless, right? This is all because um, The Rock replied to a tweet from our friend Juliette Kayem, um, who had taken her son to see Skyscraper. And we were super jealous and <laughs> wanting his attention. <laughs> no, and, and also because this is this is like grade A for Valdi. It's oh, like yeah. just the sort of segment we throw in. So the question is, what are what are the top segments? Whether from, I, I said film, Saturday Night Live, you, you pointed out ballers and TV, regular TV as well. What are the top roles or, or, play, or things he's done? Um, I've got my top three plus a bonus. Why don't you go first? Okay, so first I'll, I'll do my top three. I'll do the bonus later. Uh, my favorite ones are when Dwayne Johnson plays against type with the wink that is kind of characteristic of his style. That's where his, uh, his humor and uh, entertainment value, I think, is at its maximum. So I, I love the role he played in Central Intelligence with Kevin Hart. Mm. The, the, everything about that was sort of the classic Dwayne Johnson character. And, and you see it reprised in my number two, which is Jumanji the Reboot, which I was very skeptical about. Um, but took the kids uh, – actually, we, we watched it at home with the kids not that long ago. And it, it was really priceless. Really enjoyed it. And he, he did a fantastic job. For, you know, he's just so massive. And so when he, when he blends that with, like, the vulnerable – picked on kid kind of thing it, it's pretty magical and then uh in a version of that i think is my favorite thing he ever does is the periodic the rock obama skits on saturday night live <laughs> which you know i i mean i think that it's, it's helped plant this idea that a lot of people are interested in that he might even be a candidate in, oh, in the next cycle okay so so i i i can't strenuously object i, I just want to add two additional uh, uh vectors um, right, so fact number one, uh, Karen and I are in, in, a, in a great reflection of our terrible taste in everything, um, big fans of the TV show Ballers. Um, I think you guys have pretty good taste. Now, um, it may, there are two completely uh, specious reasons why we are fans of the show. The first is um, the opening credits include a scene of two pugs running on a treadmill. Oh, that's right up your alley. And we have a pug. And, and so, is it in Miami too? And, well, that's the second thing. And oh, the okay. second that's thing right. is um, that at least until this coming season, the show was predominantly set in the sort of celebrity athlete culture of Miami. And Karen and I both lived in Miami. We met in Miami. You know, we were sort of, you know, tangentially saw some elements of this culture. Um, and it's, you know, in, in some respects, the show actually, I think, is both intentionally and unintentionally satirical um, in its more clever moments about just how ridiculous some elements of the culture are. 
this is my problem though. My problem is um, in the new upcoming season that debuts, I think, in two weeks, they're moving to LA. And it's like, dude, there are plenty of shows about like LA entertainment culture. You know, it's the Miami part that was so interesting. It was either that or it was going to be Vegas, I guess. Which is, you know, also Vegas. All right. But. Well, I got to give my bonus shout out. So. Wait, wait, I haven't done, oh, I haven't done my. More? Yes. Oh, yeah. You missed The Rock's greatest all time acting performance by any metric. Which is his performance as Elliot Wilhelm in Be Cool. Oh, that that's pretty strong. Okay, that's I pretty mean, strong. It is like I think Be Cool in general is yeah. an underrated movie, yeah. and he is. I think his performance is like the thing that I mean, him and Cedric the Entertainer make that movie. I, I'm with you on that. I, I will credit that. Um, now I'm curious about this because your kids are are still kids. young relative to mine. <laughs> But I have seen Moana uh-huh. many times. There, so I've not. So so we just Maddie just for the first time watched Frozen, which of course was is it gonna, your first time seeing it. It was my first time seeing What'd it. What did you too. think? Um, I thought it was great. I I know what fate awaits me as the father of two daughters. That like you know in the next ten years I'm probably gonna have to watch Frozen about four thousand seven hundred times. I think you won't times. you won't get the you won't get the repetition blast that the rest of us all got. Because um, it's a little pa- pa- well, just because just it's not, you know when it first came out it was such yeah. a sensation. Well, so so there was a show that actually got canceled after one season. And I really don't know why. I think it was also HBO. It might have been something else called Happy-ish, and the pilot of the, and it was like a very real you know parent parenting show like you know and the one of the one of the most you know amusing and and sort of um, mind searing memes from the pilot. Um, was the pit was you know how how sort of soul crushing the parents you know found the their their son's repeated insistence on listening to let it go every time they got in the car <laughs> I you know I never minded it that much we did at one point come across this double CD case that had a, a second CD that had a bunch of songs that didn't make the movie oh so now if you're listening to this and you actually still have any lingering appetite for for the the songs of frozen and you don't know about this you gotta check it out I mean yeah some of it some of it wasn't so great, but there were two or three gems on there that uh, my family listened to a whole bunch. <laughs> Is that like the Hamilton mixtape? A little bit, like it. You know, it's just it's that old bootleg tape tradition when you find something that no one else has got. I will say that the music is, is so great in in Moana, and and The Rock does a great job, I think, uh, as Maui, uh, including uh, you know. What can I say except you're welcome? He sings this whole song, and I did promise to sing on Twitter, so there it is. Um, that was not even my full-throated effort, by the way. I'll save that for some other time. And then uh, the guy, uh, did you ever used to watch Flight of the Concords? No. Really? Because yes. that, that's right up your alley. That's, I know. That, that is something. I you have, know. Listen, I, have, I, I freely confess I have gaps in, yeah. my, in, my, in my TV and I was watching. sure you were going to light up on that one. Well, let's just say that uh, Jermaine has a, has a key role in some pretty fabulous singing as well. But we'll leave it there. I think we've gone on long enough. Uh, you were also on a podcast elsewhere. We both cheated on National Security Law this week. I, although, although we both cheated with, with sort of, you know, we both cheated with cousins, right? Because you were, you were on Stewart's Cyber Law Podcast. I was on the Lawfare Podcast talking about uh, Brett Kavanaugh and National Security Law with Bob Loeb from Oric and formerly from Civil Appellate and with uh, Judge Kavanaugh's former clerk, Jen Mascot, who's now at George Mason. So we got to we got to tout. The least we can do is tout both those. So yes. in addition to if telling, you haven't heard enough of us already, if you want more, go listen to the the latest episode of the Cyber Law Podcast from Stuart Baker. Go listen to today's episode of the National Security Law Podcast with uh, me and Scott Anderson and Bob Loeb and Jen Mascot. 
you know, or just listen to us twice. Or just play it twice, which gets to this other question. Maybe only half the downloads get listened to, but maybe half of those get listened to twice. Mind blown. So I, a I, I really so ten thousand okay, is okay. really within right. our grasp. So, so here's our here's our random question to listeners this week. Do any of you actually listen to this podcast multiple times? It can't be more than a few, and only on special occasions where someone needs to know. And would something you actually? About and would you thing? actually admit it publicly? Sure, why not? Things to find out. All right. Well, listen. So um, we will be back at you. Hopefully, not till next week. Um, when it's August, when Bobby, I, I suspect it w- will have a cold front where it will have gone down from 110 to 102 here in Austin. You know what? So everybody's complaining about the heat. This It's heat, really hot. Sure, but so what? It keeps the trap. Imagine how much worse the crowding into Austin would become if it was temperate. Okay, wait. Summer. Your defense of the heat is yeah, that it is so away. terrible that like no yeah. one dares go outside. Have down you outside. noticed how sweet traffic has been lately? Yes, it's in my, been nice. Yes, as I've sweat in my car with the air conditioning going full blast because it's like the the surface of the sun here. It is awesome. I love it. Yeah, we're going to New England. This reminds me of Frank Drebin. Yes, I've been swimming in raw sewage all day, <laughs> and I love it. All I know is Karen. Karen. Karen has been suggesting um, since basically the day we moved here, uh, just about two years ago. Now, two years ago, next week. Um, that we should find an excuse every summer to spend a month in New England, and this is not helping. No, the, the, this, this is why God invented Colorado. Colorado is there within <laughs> driving distance so that Texans can get out of the summer heat, and you must go. Yeah, You'll we're not, see everybody we're not, there. We're not Coloradans. We're, we're Massachusettsans. That's a harder drive. It's a harder um, drive. Let me, let me recommend uh, not a long drive. Go to New Mexico. Go to Rio Dosa. It's an easy day drive. Listen, listen. You're, you're preaching the choir here. The problem is, is that none of our family is in Colorado and New Mexico. Bug or feature, my friend. Bug or feature. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and on that note, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell your... Um, congressman. Congressman. <laughs> indeed. Uh, stay safe out there. Adios.